Welcome to Your Child's Brain, a podcast series produced by Kennedy Krieger Institute with assistance from WYPR. I'm Dr. Brad Schlager, President and CEO of Kennedy Krieger Institute in Baltimore. Today, I'm joined by Drs. Richard Katz and Peter Girolami to discuss feeding disorders in children. Dr. Katz is the Chief Medical Officer at Mount Washington Pediatric Hospital in Baltimore, Maryland, and is an Associate Professor of Pediatrics at Johns Hopkins School of Medicine. Dr. Girolami leads the Pediatric Feeding Disorders Program at Kennedy Krieger Institute and is an Assistant Professor of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at Johns Hopkins as well. Welcome, Richard and Peter. So let's start out with just basic concepts. When we talk about children having feeding issues, what do we mean and how are these concerns in child development different than eating disorders? Peter, why don't you take a crack at that one? Sure, Uh, a general definition of a feeding disorder is usually anything that includes any significant difficulty in consuming adequate nutrition by mouth. Um, It can be due to multiple factors, including medical, developmental, psychosocial, and environmental variables, leading to some maladaptive feeding behavior. Um, Typically associated with poor weight gain, inadequate intake by mouth, meaning you're tube fed or uh, risk of malnutrition, or limited variety of foods consumed, which could lead to nutrition deficiency. Um, It also leads to disruption in the family-child interaction. You could have tantrums, excessive meal durations, um, and again, it is significantly difficulty advancing to normal and developmentally appropriate solid food textures. Um, it is important to distinguish between something like eating disorders. There is, we're not talking about something that deals with body image issues or worried about the shape. Um, that's not what we're typically talking about. Richard, there's this concept uh, or construct called ARFID, Avoidant Restrictive Food Intake Disorder. What is that? Can you unpack that? Well, you know, the whole spectrum of feeding disorders in children is pretty broad, and we've tried to come up with definitions that separate children with a significant problem from those who are picky eaters. And the term ARFID, you know, really tries to sock it to the issue, um, and that we're trying to describe children who are really avoiding food, and it's restrictive, um, and it's significant. Um, this is very different than the child who won't eat broccoli or you know, the typical toddler who only eat a few things at a meal. So it's a complex term because it's a complex problem. Um, there's a newer term that's being used and it's now being more widely disseminated, just pediatric feeding disorder, which broadens the category, but doesn't really describe the problems as we as professionals see it. So I, you know, as I'm fond of saying, everybody's an expert in feeding, including grandparents. But truly, there are only a few people who are really experts in managing these complex problems. And ARFID requires a very unique set of treatments. Richard, sticking with you, we, we, we heard a bit about onset of feeding problems in infancy. So what are some of the causes of these very early feeding problems? You know, as in many things in medicine, we can only speculate about things that happen in babies. Um, they clearly can't tell us what's going on. But We take care of a lot of premature infants who have been intubated for a long time when they're awake. And I try to describe to parents, like, you know, imagine what a spoon would look like if that's coming at you versus a tube coming at you when you're awake. So yeah, there's a natural tendency to avoid that kind of abnormal or painful stimulus. But there are other things as well. And, you know, we really um, don't always know, but a lot of children have gastroesophageal reflux bringing stomach contents back up into the esophagus or or vomiting and bringing up acid, and that can injure the esophagus. 
cause discomfort. And then, you know, what do you do if you have something uncomfortable? You try to avoid that. So we think that that may be one reason why um, children have um, food restriction when they've been refluxing. But there's also a whole host of anatomic and developmental issues that these children have too. Lots of children who have complex medical problems unrelated to um, having surgery in the GI tract and things like that tend to avoid um, noxious stimuli, which they think food is um, when they've been sick for a long time. Peter, picking up on that, uh, the, this, these behaviors that uh, seem to be in response to a threat or sense of imminent discomfort, can you talk more about what are some of the other reasons that a child might develop a feeding problem? Yeah, so as Richard touched upon, children at a young age can be exposed to painful or discomfort feeding experiences, which could lead to some form of conditioned aversion. I mean, if again, if you put yourself in the shoes of every time you tried to eat, you, you threw up or it was uncomfortable, you probably would want to avoid that. Um, leading to a lot of other issues, as children avoid food, um, they are often missing through very crucial developmental stages. We take for granted that a child at six months or a year is being exposed to different types and tastes and textures. Imagine not having that occur until you're three or four years of age. You're missing that experience, not just being exposed to these flavors and these, these new things, these colors, and you're also not using your own motor skills, making it more difficult for you to actually consume these foods. And then you also have that interaction with the parents. You have parents who might be very nervous or cautious because their children had a medical issue. Kids who are throwing up or, or pushing food away, parents are often quick to say, okay, that that's right here. Let me pr provide you with your preferred food. Starting this process of, is it medical? Is it developmental? Is it behavioral? Uh, that kind of takes its own um, agenesis and moves into uh, more significant issues. I think just continuing with you, Peter, the, this, there's this concept of picky eater versus feeding disorder. How do you draw the line and uh, what distinguishes between just a picky eater and somebody who's going on to have a, a feeding disorder? We don't expect everybody to like everything. We don't like all foods. We have preferences. And, and actually, it's kind of normal to be uh, to not want a particular food, not wanting all the green vegetables at a young age is not something that you'll be wor too worried about, providing that you have a number of foods in other categories. Uh, there's a term called neophobia, where it's normal to be no nervous about trying new things. It's kind of evolutionary. Um, but then you start going into more moderate selectivity, where you have, you start to see a, a very selective range of foods. But at that point, they'll still eat the, within these foods. Maybe there's something from each food group um, but they'll eat in most situations in most uh, venues. When you start to see severe selectivity, you're talking about brand specific. We have kids that will only eat a certain type of French fry or chicken nugget. Um, they're not eating fruits or vegetables at all. They're also having, they're not going to birthday parties because they're worried of sleepovers because they're concerned about what's going to be presented uh, there to eat. Um, and then the, this impacts the family. If you'll have severe problem behavior, including meltdowns during uh, meals and tantrums. So that's when you start to gravitate there. It's, it can start one way, but again, it could eventually lead to something more significant. Richard, uh, both of you lead feeding disorder programs at your uh, institutions. Can you talk a bit about the approach to diagnosis and, and maybe even touch on the composition of the team approach that you both take in, in, in your programs? Well, one of the things that um, I've learned in Baltimore, and by the way, in Baltimore, we're very fortunate to have two well-established teams that know what to do. And I, I just want to give us a, a little bit of a plug in that many cities don't even have one program. Many very large cities, many, many very large children's hospitals don't have these programs. And um, these require a great deal of effort, a great deal of ability to have teams that work together. 
um, which is to me the hallmark of managing these problems. This is not a single discipline problem. This is not just a medical problem. This is not just a gastroenterologist taking care of this problem. This is not just a psychologist taking care of this problem. It requires, and, and both programs have the same complement of people. Um, we have physicians involved, we have psychologists involved, we have occupational therapists involved, speech pathologists involved, dietitians involved, social workers involved, um, as, as part of the core team to try to ferret out the complexity of the issue. As Peter said, this is, this is not just picky eating. This is not just losing you know, broccoli. This is a very significant problem causing disorder of not only the physical problem, but the emotional problems of the family. Um, and so it requires everybody to look at this from the ability to arrange how a child sits in a chair for the appropriate posture for eating, to how his behavior is at mealtime, to whether or not he's refluxing or is in pain, um, and then also how this really impacts the child's nutrition, and finally how important it is to the family's social well-being. So, you know, we we really truly believe that this is an interdisciplinary treatment problem. You know, you mentioned earlier that there's a lot of uh, sense of self-expertise in, in picky eating and, and feeding issues. And yet you just described this multidisciplinary team of, of highly trained professionals in different domains that work together. Richard, talk a bit about the kind of advice that uh, parents get from family, other members of the family, maybe their own parents or, or their friends, and how that works or can sometimes be a challenge uh, as uh, parents are navigating a, a child with a potential feeding disorder? So um, that's a really important issue. Um, I can tell you that at the, almost every patient I see the last five minutes, I talk to them about who's an expert in feeding and who's not. Everybody thinks that everyone eats that we know of, or I should say, everyone assumes everyone eats, um, but everyone then thinks they're an expert in eating. And so young parents in particular feel like their parents are better experts than they are the, parent, the grandparents definitely feel like they're expert. And so the, everybody's got an opinion. Um, we also know that um, their opinions can often be dead wrong. Uh, and so I, I caution the families to um, realize that this is a significant problem. You need a significant group of professionals to do this. Um, I, I will just jump ahead one point here that you know, I talk to families that this is a disability like other disabilities. You know, we don't assume that every child walks we don't assume that every child runs or that every child hears or that every child sees. So why not, or why don't we not have the same assumption about every child eating? You know, eating is an incredibly complex physiologic process. It requires protecting your airway, chewing, swallowing, all kinds of things. And, you know, it's, it's a wonder that 99% of the time we do well. Um, and so, you know, I tell these to the things, think to the family to know that they're not alone and this is a serious problem. And if you have to have me talk to the grandparents, I'm more than happy to. Peter, you want to add to that? Well, I will say as a side note, when I first got the position here at Kennedy Krieger, I told my grandmother who uh, was very excited, but she asked me, what do I do the rest of the day? And I said, what do you mean? What do I do the rest of the day? And she said, well, who doesn't eat? And it was a very good example of that, you know, in terms of the, the view of people in, you know, other situations where they don't understand that, that this is a significant issue. Well, we've talked about the composition of this multidisciplinary team and, and its importance for diagnosis, understanding exactly what, what we're dealing with, with each individual child. The next question is, how are feeding disorders treated? What is the approach? Um, Peter, maybe we could start with you. So uh, like Richard touched upon, the, the most important part is finding out the why. 
Uh, the kids have multiple various factors of why they're not eating. If there's a medical issue, that medical issue needs to be treated because if you're not treating that issue, you're trying to get someone to eat or try to work on oral motor skills and they might be in discomfort. Um, the, the other part is, is that also, can they eat? What's their ability? You know, what's their, our goal is really to reach the children's potential. And again, we work with these folks to try to get them as far along the, the process as they can, because as we just discussed, how important eating is socially and culturally. Um, just being able to sit at the table, that's where a lot of families have their opportunities to get to, to, to share their days with each other. So we take that approach as an interdisciplinary team to try to all be detectives and try to ferret out all the different reasons that could be going on there. A good example is sometimes we work with kids who've never eaten before. So we don't know until they're starting to take food in their mouth, are they safe? We have potential of swallowing issues that can't be diagnosed until you're getting them to try some foods. You don't know until you try different textures is their ability there to, to, to take those textures. Um, and then also to the refusal part, the, the, the will, unwillingness to try the foods. There's so many kids that have not tried things. They say they don't like it or they can't do it. Once they start eating, Richard and I know this very well, they sometimes take off and they actually really enjoy the food. It's just they've never tried it. So we try to tackle the medical part of it by using the, the current medical technology and the, the knowledge we have. The oromotor piece, speech language and occupational therapists are experts in working on oromotor skills. It's almost like rehab for your mouth. Um, these are This makes it easier for the child to chew something up or to manage the food, to avoid coughing and gagging. And then again, that, that behavioral piece is that exposing them gradually to these different foods, To if there's fear involved, to, to show them that you're okay, the food goes down and there's nothing that happens and you start to build up that momentum. And these things all work together. But we also take into account the family dynamic because again, do the family have the resources to do the things that we're asking them to do? And also do the, do the family have the resources to eat the foods that we're asking them to, that we're asking them to present to their child? So it really is a, a comprehensive approach to take care of things because of all the different variables involved. Richard, maybe pick up on, on uh, the approach that you, that you take at Mount Washington, but also what happens if there is, uh, we, we don't succeed in addressing the feeding disorder adequately? What happens to that child? So that's a really important question because there is no quick solution to most of these issues. There are a few circumstances where, you know, relatively short-term psychology uh, sessions will be able to help a child who has, you know, hurt themselves with swallowing and, and is avoiding food. You know, a short-term period with a psychologist seems to work, but most of these children do need um, a gradual approach to reintroduction or introduction of feeding. Um, with the with the whole team and trying, as Peter said, trying to understand if there's a medical oral motor issue or a behavioral issue or some of each of those things. Um, we know that you know children can survive on tube feeds. Um, you know it's it, it's really the 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 hallmark of what we have done in pediatric GI in the last 30 years and making sure that children do get nutrition. But living with the tube is not the way to go for most people. Um, and so we know that we really try to wean these children off of tube feeds to prevent them from becoming dependent on tube feeds. But we also know that if feeding disorders aren't treated early on, that can lead to permanent feeding disorders. You know, the other part is, is that sometimes families get advice that this will um, remedy itself over time. Just keep doing what you're doing. And, you know, years can go by. We typically start to see kids when they start to enter going to school because all of a sudden, boy, now this eating problem, you can't, the school can't handle it or you're going social situations. 
And it could be very difficult to, to not work on those things. There, there are just thoughts of critical windows of time where these skills can be developed. Um, but when you're talking about 10, 11, 12, and you haven't worked on this yet, it could be more difficult because the children are more ingrained in that, that process and what they're eating and they don't know anything else there. So I think an assessment in an early period of time is very important because you can really get it before it becomes a bigger thing. Can each of you talk about where are the new treatments or research or discoveries that are on the horizon? Uh, where, where is the field heading? Richard? Well, you know, it's heading where it's been for a while, that the establishment of interdisciplinary teams, uh, and that needs to be um, broadened around the country. Um, it's unfortunate that it's, you know, so difficult for some people um, to access those teams. So we really think that that's what um, the, our societies are trying to do is to develop interdisciplinary teams to be able to help children uh, significantly. I think as we begin to understand more about um, the GI issues and, and that it's more complex than just a little bit of reflux, I think you know, that's where a lot of that is gonna go and better diagnostics in terms of, you know, is somebody hurting, is their esophagus uncomfortable? Um, do they have too much acid production? I think we know that for a lot of children, but I think the technology for small babies has just not been as good as it could be. So I think that's one aspect of it. And I'm sure Peter has ideas about um, the behavioral approaches. Yeah, one, one great thing that over the years is that there's now a lot of empirically supported uh, research on the effective treatments for these kinds of feeding issues. So there's groups design and also single subject design with a variety of different therapeutic techniques um, that are now supported and they're uh, being used. So the, there are resources out there to access these uh, approaches that you could try out. The key is though, again, you wanna make sure that you're working with someone who's experienced in feeding disorders, because again, making sure that you're covering all those variables, applying an, uh, an intervention that's not a good match for a child is not gonna be effective. So pairing these interventions with the right family and the child is extremely important, but there are so many more out there and both of our programs are on the forefront of kind of disseminating this information um, that it, it really is a much better situation than we were years ago. Let's talk about how parents can learn more. Uh, are there good resources available on the internet? Are there uh, scientific societies that focus on dissemination of information? What can you say to that point? No, I just want to caution parents. You know, there are a lot of there are a lot of books out about this, and there's lots of web information about children with feeding disorders, and there's lots of apparent quick fix type solutions. Um, and what we really have to know is that one procedure doesn't fix all. Um, and parents have to be very careful about what road they're going down um, and who they're following. And um, we know that there are lots of people who um, work with single disciplinary, single discipline programs um, that sort of pigeonhole children into a certain pathway. And we know that that's really not effective. And so I would caution parents to read as much as they can, talk to as many people as they can about this, professionals about this. Um, and there are two societies that are available um, that are producing information. Um, one is more parent family directed and one is much more scientific academic directed, but there's, a, there is a, there's good information from those societies out and available to people. Peter? Yeah, I would agree. I, I think you gotta be very careful the one size fits all. And I think you really have to look at patterns. Um, if you're trying to intervene on a problem related to feeding and you have to watch, are things getting better, worse, or the same? And there's sometimes easy ways to do that. You can just look at how long is your meal taking to complete? If that just a simple timer to notice if the meal is getting longer or shorter can give you a nice indicator. If you're noticing those things aren't working, you wanna abort the mission. You don't wanna keep going in that direction and reach out to a provider. 
Um, I mean, a number of pediatricians may not have a feeding experience, but they can often type, uh, um, send you to a feeding team or give you potential some resources that are available for help in this situation. I've been a general pediatrician and I know what the general pediatricians have to deal with, you know, seeing four to six children an hour. And they see a lot of toddlers, they see a lot of parents who are concerned about their children's eating. And, you know, they don't always know from what parents are telling them that this is a severe problem. And so, you know, I would say to parents that, you know, if you're chasing a child around the house to feed them, if you have to feed them in the bathtub, if you're giving them one single food every day, you've really got to say that specifically to your pediatrician so they can, you know, help you and then step in and offer a referral to the right place. Um, it's really critical that parents have to be diligent about this telling this to their pediatricians. I, I know what those days were like um, and seeing so many children an hour and everybody has to concern about their children's health and well-being, but sometimes it's really far beyond what a normally acceptable difference is. Really important point, Richard. I just want to underscore the, the how challenging it is for that general pediatrician, for the family practice doctor, for the that frontline provider who who is seeing a lot of patients in a, in a brief period of time, that it's really important for parents to, to be explicit, as you say, to make clear the, the challenges that they're facing so that recognition of a potential feeding disorder is made promptly. Uh, you, you mentioned, Richard, that there's a couple of societies, one more uh, practitioner-oriented, one more uh, parent-oriented. Maybe let's just say them and we could potentially uh, uh, provide the information on the podcast website as well. You know, the um, Parent and Family um, Society is, the fee is Feeding Matters, uh, based in Arizona. Um, and the Professional Society is, doesn't have a very catchy name, but it's International Association of Pediatric Feeding and Swallowing. Uh, both have websites, and um, we'll, you know, there's a lot of information on both of them. That's great. Peter, Richard, thank you so much for a rich conversation about the important issue of feeding disorders. Greatly appreciate it. You've been listening to Your Child's Brain. Your Child's Brain is produced by Kennedy Krieger Institute with assistance from WYPR and producer Spencer Bryant. Please join us next time as we examine the mysteries of your child's brain. <laughs>